Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to Moms and Murder, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. I wish this rainy day would go away. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're going on vacation now, so I'm not feeling so bad for you well, right I'm the hoping that the rain definitely goes away now because I'm a little nervous. It's going to be raining my whole vacation. True. So we are officially back to weekly episodes now. Woohoo! Woohoo! We are in September, finally. I know... Um, some people in our Facebook group acted like they thought this day would never come. <laughs> so, and other people wish it would, and so yeah. you know, there's yeah, <laughs> including you, right? No, 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 I'm happy. <laughs> and I guess the only real announcement that we have um, this week is just kind of a reminder about um, the Southern Southeastern True Crime Podcast Meetup. That is a mouthful. We've mentioned it a couple of times now, but that's going to be happening in Atlanta, October 13th. Um, and there is more information on our social media venues, if you will, um, if you want. The venues we have all yeah. over the interwebs. <laughs> so official. So if you are interested in that, then um, check that out. And um, we hope to see some some people there. I mean, somebody has to show yeah. up, right? Like- I hope to see anyone there. <laughs> Perfect. So this week we are delving into what I think is our first unsolved case, right? I mean, unless you count um, Diane Schuler, but it's not a yeah. murder, so. yeah. And it wasn't really unsolved. I mean, 
Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So it's a little bit different than what um, you guys are typically used to, but this story was another suggestion out of our Facebook group, and it has a lot of twists and turns that I think um, will leave a lot of people scratching their heads and wondering how a murderer that actually left their DNA at the crime scene could go over 20 years without being caught. So this story unfolds in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and Melissa has Googled this city for us. Look, it's a statement now. It's not a question. Yeah. Did you? It's You did. Yeah. So there's not actually a ton of information I could find on Idaho Falls. Um, as of 2016, there were around 60,000 residents in Idaho Falls, Idaho. And this is from a Wikipedia entry, so some 13-year-old could have written it, but it made me laugh. Idaho Falls was originally named Eagle Rock, but in 1891, after a huge drop in population in an effort to attract farmers, the name was actually changed to Idaho Falls as farmers were worried about both eagles and rocks. Oh, so it makes sense, <laughs> but it was like, oh, I guess if you put those two together and you're a farmer, that would kind of stink. Like yeah. somebody's going to eat your food and oh, also there's nowhere to plant anything because of all these rocks. So this is an Idaho fun fact. Like I said, there was just not a whole lot on Idaho Falls. Um, and this one sort of broke my heart. In Idaho, law forbids a citizen to give another citizen a box of candy that weighs more than 50 pounds. Oh, that's a terrible law. Keep your hands out of my confectionery goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all the really facts I found for we Googled the city. We need an outro. There isn't one. So just pretend. Play, play music in your head. We'll keep going. <laughs> all right. So Angie Dobb was born on December 21st, 1977 in Vancouver, Washington. She was the youngest of four children to her parents, Jack and Carol, and she was their only daughter. Her brothers recall her birth as a big event in the family. I remember them saying like their dad was like running and they were just so excited they have this sister in their family, this yeah. little girl. Early in life, her parents and teachers recognized her remarkable intelligence and by high school she was tutoring younger children in both math and English. She graduated high school in 1995 with honors and briefly attended Idaho State University. Angie was a lover of the outdoors and enjoyed spending time in nature. Camping with her family, and sometimes this was in rem remote locations, was one of her favorite ways to relax. As a younger child, she enjoyed playing for hours with her Cabbage Patch dolls and spending time with her cousins. Some people might feel cheated out of their birthday if they were born so close to Christmas. I would be the biggest brat. Oh, my birthday is December 1st, and I'm already bitter about that. Yeah. And I, it's like, it's far <laughs> enough away from Christmas that it shouldn't be a problem. But I always like to complain because it's like in the middle of everything. It's yeah. right after Thanksgiving, and then it is before Christmas. And so. Oh, it's an no afterthought, Mandy. Yeah. I know. No one cares about my birthday ever. <laughs> but uh, Angie actually loved being born around Christmas, and she totally embraced it and loved having large family gatherings to celebrate her birthday and the holiday at the same time. Angie had a very close relationship with her mom, so it was especially hard on them both when Angie got her own apartment when she turned 18. She had been working hard at a beauty supply store to be able to afford her own place, as well as a new Chevy that she had just recently bought um, to replace her first car, which she affectionately referred to as the Oldsmobile Boat. And nice. I think we can all picture exactly what car that was. Yeah, <laughs> because I, exactly. I um I, my dad used to drive like something similar. It wasn't an Oldsmobile, but it was like a boat car. Right. So I can see. Um, and yeah, he wanted me to drive it. For, like he wanted to give it to me as my first car. And I was like, no. Yeah. I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. My parents bought this. I don't know why this brings this up to me, but it was just horrific. Um, there, my parents had this, like told us they were buying this van and they were so excited to tell us, well, there was this one kid in my class in the sixth grade. I shouldn't say grades. In a grade I went to and he was so terrible. And everybody said I liked him. 
nobody liked me. I didn't like him. But I was so concerned. Like, he had the ugliest van in the world. And I have to make up a name. I'm going to call him Tom Smith. Wow, I'm creative. <laughs> but I was like, Mom, did you get a Tom Smith van? And she was like, no, I, you know, it's this van, blah, blah, blah. And she drives up in it. And it's one of those with the motor. It, like, slants down like this in the front. And then there's a motor next to it. So the radiator overheated one time. And it's literally overheating in the van with you. But I was like, oh, my gosh, it's a Tom Smith van. <laughs> and I, like, wanted her to drop me off way down the road. And we can edit all this out. But continue. <laughs> cool story. Cool story, bro. <laughs> so Angie had been living on her own for three weeks when the reality of adulthood kind of hit her hard, and she went to visit her mom for some comfort on June 12, 1996. She and her mom, Carol, had a talk about how much she loved living in her new place, but it was just hard being on her own and growing up, and I totally understand that. I remember when I first was starting out, and actually I ended up moving back home um, after I lived on my own for a little while. Then I moved back with my parents because – it is hard. And when you're 18, it's hard. Yeah. So Carol and Angie had this kind of um, this special moment between each other and they hugged. And uh, Carol says that that during that conversation, Angie kind of just like laid her head on her on her mom's shoulder. And and it was just like a loving exchange that they had. Yeah. So then they hugged and then Angie left to go back to her apartment around 1020 p.m. that night. Neither of them knew that this would be um, their last moments together. So the next morning, Angie was a no-show at her job, and some of her worried coworkers decided to drive over to her apartment and check up on her, and that's when they made the horrifying discovery that their friend had been killed in a violent attack. Officers arrived to find a brutal crime scene. It appeared that Angie had been sexually assaulted and then stabbed 14 times. There was no signs of rape, but they did notice that her clothing was halfway off and they found semen on her body. She had many defensive wounds, which showed that she had put up a fight for her life. Police found no signs of forced entry. Angie's boyfriend at the time was out of town, so detectives began investigating other possible suspects in her murder. They were able to pull a complete DNA profile from the semen left at the scene, but unfortunately it did not turn up any hits in their databases. Police began requesting DNA swabs from dozens of local men who they believed could have committed such a crime, as well as from everyone that Angie knew or had a connection with, but none of these men were a match. The trail started to go cold after months, had passed without any arrests, and any hope of finding anyone who had done this was starting to dwindle. But then on January 6, 1997, six months after her murder, an acquaintance of Angie's named Ben Hobbs was arrested in Nevada on charges of sexually assaulting a woman at knife point. Due to the similarity in the type of crime committed against Angie, they felt that he was a solid suspect in her murder, and they took him into custody. While Ben Hobbs was being held in Nevada, police back in Idaho Falls were working diligently to try to connect him to Angie's murder. As part of this process, they began requesting interviews with friends of Ben's in hopes that one of them would be able to implicate him in this particular crime. One of the men that they brought in was named Christopher Tapp, and he was a 20-year-old um, with, I guess some might say he had a questionable past, really he just wasn't kind of involved in drugs whenever he was younger. So Chris Tapp's life started out pretty typical. He had a pretty good childhood and a good mom who loved him and wanted to help him succeed. But at age 13, he started smoking pot. And by age 16, he had moved on to a much harder drug, uh, meth. Eventually, he became a high school dropout and spent his days getting as high as possible, hanging out by the river with all the other quote unquote bad kids. This is what uh, this was in his words, you know, these bad kids that 
right. his mom warned him about, you know, don't hang around those kids. So when the police first contacted him about coming in for an interview in Angie's murder, he initially thought that they were just bringing him in on something related to his drug use. And he was stunned when they started talking about this terrible, like brutal murder. His mom did not want him to speak to police, and she was actually very scared about that and kind of tried to warn him and say, you don't need to get involved in this, you know, as much as you can. Like, you just need to stay out of it. But he kind of told her he didn't have anything to hide, and he didn't have any reason not to talk to the police. Uh, So he agreed to to do an interview and also to submit his DNA so that he could have his name cleared. This would end up being a choice that would haunt him for the rest of his life. That's so tough because you think – I'm doing the right thing. I have I didn't do anything and right. they'll they'll know I didn't have anything to do with this. So you would And think, he's young. He's a young kid. Twenty is young. Yeah. I mean, you don't know and and you're very trusting of the process and everything at that point. So you're right. like, all I have to do is just give him my DNA and they'll be able to see that right. it wasn't me. You very know, and obvious. You, and it should be over, you know, right. at that point. Uh, before we get into the rest of the story, we're gonna take a break for a quick word from this week's sponsor. As a mom, it's important to me that my kids learn to love a variety of food options, but anyone with kids will tell you it's not always easy to get them to eat outside the box. And by box, I mean pizza box. We recently tried the Picky Eater, kid-tested and approved family meal plan from HelloFresh. Each box is made up of fresh, responsibly obtained ingredients from carefully selected farms and highly trusted sources. My kids were obsessed with the creamy dill chicken with roasted potatoes and green beans, and I loved not having to plan dinners, spend money on takeout, or worry about hitting up the store for those last-minute meal ingredients. HelloFresh believes in making cooking feel less like a chore. They keep the recipes easy and simple to follow with all the ingredients coming in pre-measured labeled kits, so there's no guesswork in creating these meals. The best part is that the recipes only take around 30 minutes from start to finish. There are many benefits in subscribing, but my personal favorite has been getting out of my comfort zone and trying new and delicious recipes. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes, visit HelloFresh.com slash MomsAndMurder60 and enter promo code MomsAndMurder60. That's HelloFresh.com slash MomsAndMurder60 and enter promo code MomsAndMurder60 for a total of $60 off your first three boxes. Detectives first interviewed Chris on January 7th, 1997, and he was adamant that he had absolutely nothing to do with the murder and had no real connection to Angie at all. But the police weren't buying his story, and they began feeding him information and details about the murder in a pretty sketchy way. He was interrogated for over 20 hours and subject to numerous polygraph tests, which police insisted proved that he was being deceptive with the story he was giving them. So one thing uh, I noticed on... There was like a, it was a Dateline special, and I had seen that years ago, but then I saw the Keith Morrison, um, Who Killed Angie Dodge. It's like the ID special. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was like the extended Dateline, basically. Um, And the guy who was interrogating him had actually been a police officer at his school. So, you know, in high school and stuff, he had seen this officer. So he had like a trusting relationship with this guy. So he has no reason to think this guy could be leading me in the wrong direction. Right. You know, so it's not just a cop. It's this cop he actually had a relationship of some, you know, a friendship with um, from high school. So after the first few days of interrogation, days of interrogation, which blows my mind, Chris began to crack and he started telling the officers what he believed they wanted to hear. You hear that all the time in things like this. Uh, Four days after the interrogation began, Chris found himself arrested and charged with being an accessory to a felony. Chris's story was never consistent, though. At first, he told the police that he could give them the name of Angie's rapist, but he eventually gave them several names, including Ben Hobbs, Jeremy Sargis, and a man he only referred to as Mike. 
When pathologists tested the DNA from Ben Hobbs and Jeremy Sargis and realized it didn't match the DNA at the crime scene, they insisted that Chris was lying, and they had a previous immunity deal that was based on him telling the truth the entire time. And because at this point the DNA doesn't match, well, he's lying, and therefore the immunity deal is off the table. Right. After several more hours of interrogation and polygraph testing, Chris finally confessed to the murder. He told police that he had held Angie down while Ben Hobbs and another man sexually assaulted her and fatally stabbed her. He even stated to police that he himself had used the knife to cut Angie. Chris was arrested on January 29, 1997 and charged with rape and first-degree murder. There was just one small, or huge, if you ask me, problem. The DNA they collected from Chris did not match the DNA at the crime scene either, which meant that someone other than Chris was in Angie's apartment and had assaulted her. Even though there was only one person's DNA collected at the crime scene, police insisted that it must have just come from a third unknown person. So they're not even, they're just saying like, we know you did it and we know that this other guy, Ben Hobbs, had something to do with it. And the only reason that your DNA has nothing to do, you know, that doesn't mean you weren't there. It just means somebody else was also there. Right. And so, but it's like, what? Like, And the guy who has actually been arrested in another state for sexually assaulting, they were like, oh, no, he didn't do it. What? Like, yeah. I didn't even get how that guy got off so easy. Like, right. Like, but you're still going after him? His his DNA is not there either. How? This right. guy has a history and this one does. Yeah. It made no sense No, it didn't make any sense. It was really it was strange to watch how, like, it all it kind of went from, like, one point to, like, another. Yeah. And, and you're just kind of like, how did we get here? Like, yeah. to this? It was like, like they him. focused on it and they, that was it. That was just the route they were going and there was just no turning back. Right. There was absolutely no evidence to support this idea that three people had committed this crime, but the detectives marched on with the story as if it was the truth. When it came time for Chris to go to trial, Angie's mother, Carol, was relieved to finally be getting justice for her daughter, and she was fiercely angry when Chris stood up in court and pled not guilty. At this point, she's thinking, she only knows what the police have told her, and they're like, this is the guy, we've got the guy. He's confessed. He's confessed, right. He confessed to doing it, and so she is like, as a mother, I could see where she would be horrified whenever he stood up and was like, not guilty, like yeah. after he already confessed to this murder. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing Dash Pass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With Dash Pass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, Dash Pass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With Dash Pass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly Dash Pass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, Dash Pass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. 
Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Um, But his defense was that he had given this false confession due to manipulation tactics and lies fed to him by the detectives and then coerced back out of him on tape. He maintained his story that he had nothing to do with the murder, but after 13 hours of deliberating, the jury found him guilty of aiding and abetting the rape and murder of Angie Dodge, and he was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in connection with the crime. But this is not where the story ends. As we talked about previously, there was absolutely no forensic evidence that Chris Taff was anywhere near the scene of Angie's murder, which was a big problem for Carol, who eventually came to believe in his innocence. I... Love Carol. Me too. Love Carol. You're, I told Mandy, I text her, like, as I'm watching the Dateline thing, I'm like, I've, I've cried a thousand times. And it's, it's all this lady. Yeah. yeah. She's just so, she loved her daughter so much. And you can relate to that. As a parent, as a, you know, relative, as a parent, child, anything like that, if you have that kind of love in your life, it's, it was excruciating to watch her going through that. And then to realize that she, she had to come to that realization that, this guy that I wanted in jail that did this to my daughter, I was wrong. Yeah. That's a, I have chills. That yeah. is a lot to take in. So she actually essentially launches her own investigation at this point into Angie's murder, and she puts over 60,000 miles on her truck searching for answers. She spends countless hours reviewing the interrogation tapes and the forensic lab reports and came to a conclusion that Angie's killer was still on the loose and that an innocent man was serving time for a murder that he did not commit. One thing that stood out to Carol from a lab report was in regards to two pubic hairs they'd found on Angie's body. The report stated that the hairs were, quote, similar or same as the victim. But Carol thought that was strange considering how precise DNA testing was, and she wondered how it could be an either-or thing. The hairs either belonged to Angie or they did not. At this point, Carol contacted a renowned DNA expert named Greg Hampikian and asked for his help in finding out what happened to her daughter. Greg had previously worked as a fruit fly geneticist. What is that? I don't know, but I finally got through that word. It took me 35 times. I just want to know what that even is. I know. that. I mean, that's like, do you grow up wanting to be that? Or do you just like later in life are like, well, that's that's pretty cool. Like, Yeah. I just, I mean, fruit flies are like the most annoying little things ever. I I can't imagine dedicating my life to like not – exterminating to them learning about their genetics like yeah no. that, <laughs> yeah that's kind of weird I don't know if he would have been my top of my choice for a yeah. help there yeah so his uh, career path actually changed when he was able to assist on a DNA case that eventually led to a man being exonerated and released from prison his calling in life became clear and he began doing more work on DNA cases in 2011 he was part of the team that helped exonerate Amanda Knox and he eventually went on to found the Idaho Innocence Project whose mission is to correct and prevent wrongful convictions through research, education and litigation. I freaking love the Innocence Project. All of them they're just so amazing and if you ever are looking for a place to give money and you just are rich and you don't want to send it to us then I would definitely recommend sending it to your local Innocence Project. They do amazing amazing work. Yeah. 
Carol asked the police department to look for the hairs that were stored in evidence, and she wanted to send them to a special crime lab where DNA testing could either prove or disprove that Chris or Ben Hobbs were the ones that were in Angie's apartment. The results that came in were pretty clear. In terms of the DNA evidence, there was only one person who had committed this crime, and the long-held police theory that there were three people responsible was just ridiculous. That that was There was nothing whatsoever to support that. In 2014, over a decade after Angie's murder, Carol pressured the police to use a controversial search process um, involving, like, familial DNA. So this is um, where they go into their databases and they look for – they put the DNA in, but they're not looking for an exact match. They're just looking for possibly a relative of whoever's DNA they have. So she, so a lot of uh, states actually do not allow this kind of search process because there really are some serious privacy concerns um, as it pertains to police being able to go in and do that, and like right. they're they're essentially looking. Well, it's into, not your DNA; it's right, your family. Right, exactly. But this uh, this has come up recently with Golden State Killer, right. and like this is now becoming more and more of a thing. But when a couple years back when this was going on, it wasn't really like a widely known yeah. huge thing. But now it's becoming more and more of a thing that a lot of police agencies are using this technique to track down right people they haven't been able to find for years and years and years right and uh very controversial stuff and i'm gonna just keep a lot of my opinions to myself oh you will keep them to yourself or they will go out and editing (laughs) (laughs) so idaho happens to be one of the states that does not allow this type of search in their criminal databases but this guy greg hampikian saw a loophole and suggested something that really is even more controversial, which was to search public databases. So these are like your Ancestry.coms, 23andMe, um, any of these ones where you spit in a tube and send off your DNA to wherever it gets. And um, you guys know I don't, I'm a conspiracy person. I personally won't be giving my DNA to anyone. I, my personal endorsement is that you keep your DNA to yourself. Um, but I understand Melissa's rolling her eyes at me because I know there are situations where sometimes it's a good thing and whatever. You but. know, like the Golden State Killer, how yeah. that turned out. That, <laughs> But I mean, I, I get it because you're not giving consent. It's somebody in your family. But you know what I say? Don't murder somebody. Maybe don't do that. And maybe. Okay. I know what you mean. Okay. Yeah. But these people sometimes are having their DNA and like they're having an investigation on them. They don't even know about it. Yeah. And they're not even the ones who are guilty. Right. And and so, and that's where, I mean, it is like a privacy concern, like that the police can like use your DNA to track down someone else. It's like, that's cool if you end up catching a, a murderer, but like, also, I don't think it's cool that you like looking into like me and my whole family like yeah. without me even being aware of it like that's yeah. not no very... I get that well it's not you giving consent I feel like if you send your DNA off and you put it in one of those sites yeah they can you know check you out but every person in your family tree hasn't consented that to that so I get it but it's one of those catch-22s there's really good stuff that can happen with it. And then also it's a violation of your privacy and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And blah. Oh, it's just a little thing. A little violation of your privacy. It's just the Constitution, <laughs> but blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So in the summer of 2014, um, they searched the DNA database, Ancestry.com, which at the time was all public. Um, anybody could search the through That's the database. Crazy. Yeah, I know. But Ancestry has since made their database private. They surprisingly had a close match when they did this search, and they believed that they had located a relative of Angie's killer. It was an extremely close match with 34 out of 35 matching alleles, and I'm not a scientist, but that sounds 
pretty close. <laughs> um, so they obtained a warrant for um, Ancestry to reveal the identity of the person, and they learned that it belonged to a man named Michael Usry Sr. They knew that he himself could not have been the killer, otherwise it would have been a perfect match, so they ho- started honing their sights in on his son, Michael Usry Jr., as a potential suspect. When police looked Michael Jr. up on Facebook, they quickly realized that he had connections in Idaho Falls. As they continued their preliminary quest for information about him, they also discovered that he was a filmmaker who specialized in sinister murder movies. They remember back to when Chris Taff had mentioned the name Mike in the interrogation room and wondered if this man, Michael Usry, could be the Mike they'd been missing all these years. Or he just gave a basic name to get you off of his back. It's one of those two things. Yeah. Detectives brought Michael Jr. in for questioning where they asked him about his connections to Idaho Falls and whether he had taken a trip there around the time of Angie's murder. He told them that he had gone up there with his friends for one night, and they had driven through Idaho Falls on their way to Rexburg, Idaho. Huge red flags started going up for the detectives as they immediately pulled out a DNA swab and collected a sample of Michael Jr.'s DNA and sent him on his way. Michael Usry's light was turned upside down at this point. He knew he hadn't committed a murder, but here he was with the police hot on his trail. And there's another man claiming, hey, I'm in jail and I'm innocent, so you've got to think, oh my gosh, I'm going to get railroaded next. He spent whole days inside his home too scared to leave the house. He wanted answers as to why the police felt that he was a suspect in this terrible crime, so he started to do some research of his own. He found out that his father had participated in a genealogy project at his church many years prior to this. Crazy. Yes. The DNA that was collected from his father was then put into a database that was later purchased by Ancestry.com. At this point in time, this was the only instance of police officially requesting that Ancestry actually share the personal information um, from a DNA profile that they had a hit on. And since this story has taken place, they've actually made their database private, as I said before, so it can no longer be accessed by police or the public um, unless they are compelled to do so via a search warrant. On January 13th, 2014, Michael Jr. received an email from the police letting him know that his DNA did not match the DNA at their crime scene and he was cleared of all suspicion, but the experience obviously left him traumatized and he went public with his story in a documentary. I'm sorry, they sent him an email that said you're not Yeah. You're not and it was accused like, <laughs> of murder. Yeah, and it was like the email said I'm like your DNA didn't match the crime scene. And then in parentheses, it was like, as you already know. Like, it was just such a, like, informal, like. That's like an evite you'd send somebody. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's an evite, like, press decline. You're no longer. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That is kind of strange. A strange way of, of letting someone know that I'd like a phone call. Yeah. I'd like a phone call. Or maybe he didn't answer his calls. I probably wouldn't need to either. Yeah. <laughs> so he made this documentary. Um, he started making this documentary so that he could share his personal story of his experience dealing with the police and this whole DNA fiasco. And um, although it was supposed to just be his story, his focus actually shifted after he met Angie's mother, Carol, and he was able to form a close bond with her. And then he decided to change the direction of the documentary and make it more about um, just Angie's case in general and to help Carol on her quest to learn the true identity of her killer. Since Chris Tapp has been in prison, he has appealed his conviction to the Idaho Supreme Court and he's lost. He's filed for post-conviction relief five times, three of which failed and two of which were pending until just recently. There have been several documentaries on this case, including a two-hour dateline, which is a Keith Morrison one like we talked about, um, and also on ID. And they did a really, really good job on the ID one, just having so much extra information. When the dateline ran, a woman named Lori Hollinsworth saw it and immediately felt that Chris was innocent and wanted to reach out to him with a letter and offer to become an advocate for his case. 
After sending letters back and forth, the two realized they were in love and they got married in a quick ceremony that was done at the prison on July 28, 2013. Unfortunately, Lori died in a car accident on Jan- in January of 2016. That is so Come awful. on. And like the way he, like, <laughs> I had read an article where he had been interviewed, where Chris Tapp had been interviewed about and talked a little bit about um, his wife. And, you know, he just said that she like saw something in him that like he didn't even see and that she was like his rock basically, you yeah. know, and, like that she really believed in his innocence. And um, that's just so heartbreaking that, that that happened um, to her and she had two little girls and everything. We'll talk a little bit more because um, I think he actually did get to meet them. Oh gosh, I have chills. I can't even deal with this story anymore, man. <laughs> I know it is really a terrible story. Later in the fall of 2016, Chris's lawyers came up with an idea and they asked Bonville prosecuting attorney Daniel Clark about settling Chris's two pending appeals. The deal was that Chris's murder conviction would stay on his record, but the rape conviction would be dropped and he would be immediately released from prison for time served already on the murder conviction. He had already been in jail for 20 years. Um, So this would mean he would finally go home right away and he could live a life outside of a prison cell, but he would forever be labeled a convicted murderer for a crime he did not do. This part of the story made me so upset because I really wish there was more they could have done for him. And he had like to really think about like think this through like do I take this deal and there was one guy I can't remember who it was exactly who said I sat with him an hour on the day he was making the decision, begging him not to do it. But I understand all the reasons he did it. Like, he can leave, but he's giving up. A lot. A lot. And yeah. and he was never guilty to begin with, but he's right. still having to wear this scarlet letter forever because right. of taking this deal that should have he should have been out. Yeah, I mean, and I the other option, though, and like he said, like, if I didn't, if I, like, rejected the deal, then he's like, what if I never could get out of prison? Or, you know, what he's like, I've been fighting it this whole time and I've never been able to get like anywhere with it, you know? And so why, you know, why would I think that this wasn't like my one chance to actually get out of jail? And the immunity deal already blew up in his face. You know, he had a somewhat of a shot before and that went, you know. Yeah, it is really upsetting though. I do wish there was more, but I mean, also like he could really sue though if he had his conviction overturned because he was wrongfully imprisoned. So I feel like a little bit for like the state, like that was kind of their way of saying like, okay, like we'll let you go, but like you can't, like now you can't come back and sue us because you're still a convicted murderer. It's terrible. It is terrible. So Chris walked into the courtroom in handcuffs for the last time. And after just a few legal formalities, he was uncuffed and set free. He immediately went and hugged his mother and then Carol Dodge, who had become one of his biggest advocates, as we had said, um, after she had really hated him and believed that he was Angie's killer, really, for the first 10 years or so of his sentence. Um, So his first two stops after his release from prison were to his father's grave. His father had passed away while Chris was in prison and he was not given permission to attend the funeral. And again, it just makes me say, like, this poor guy has been through so much and, like, didn't deserve any of it. Um, The next place he went after that was to visit his wife, Lori's family. And as I said, she had two little girls. And um, so he got to meet them, meet her parents. And like he had said, like with that, he said he wanted them to like see that he was a real person, you know, and like that they like he really did like care about her and like they had this relationship and everything. And so that was kind of like closure for him, I guess, you know, having to go through these like terrible losses while he's behind bars. It's like so awful I sobbed the whole time whenever he's when they're in the uh, courthouse and he's hugging Angie's mom and he's hugging his mom and his mom keeps saying to him like 
Carol's the reason you're out. Like she, she did this, you know, really she's like, if you have the victim's mom advocating for something, like, I know this did not, he did not do this. That's huge. Like she's giving up a lot. But then the flip side of that on her side, if there's this convicted killer there, are the police, the police aren't going after anybody else. Right. Somebody's being charged. Somebody's serving time. So why are they going to do this? So it's important on her side to also, I guess, flip the conviction. I love that lady so much. Me too. She's, and that's what she said. Like, she's never going to stop like fighting. And I don't believe that she ever will. Never, ever, ever. Like, I mean, she's, she's very determined to like figure out who, who did this. Yeah. And we'll have um, her memorial site up on our thing. Please, please, please look at it. Please look at all the information on there. And we're not like, big advocates on our show whatsoever but man like if yeah. you if we have so many people listening just take a look at it take a look take a yeah and there's some contact information there even for like um anonymous leads or yeah. anything you know you never um, know you don't you really don't ever know and it really is a it's it's a nice um tribute website to her there's a video on there with pictures and everything yeah. and they play um it's a Kenny Chesney song, um, Who You'd Be Today, I think. No, I can't. Uh-uh. <laughs> it's, it's, I I don't put music on websites, but. I started watching it, me. and I couldn't even make it through. I really couldn't. So Chris Tapp now lives back in Idaho Falls, which kind of surprised me, because I feel like I would absolutely never go back there. But I guess if that's where your roots are, and that's where you have His support mom is and everything. There, yeah. Right. So he actually took a job. He did find a job with a construction company in a neighboring state. But for his own privacy, he, he didn't, like give details on where that was hear that believe it or not summer is just around the corner luckily armor all america's most trusted auto appearance brand has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine plus now through may 31st we'll give you five dollars for every 20 you spend on armor all products that means car wash pods protectant tire shine you name it find out how to get your five dollar rebate at armorall.com Armor all, less work, more clean. Terms apply. So Carol Dodge says that she will never give up searching for her daughter's killer. And as Mandy said, we definitely don't think she will. And I really hope in her lifetime, you know, somebody is found for this. And um, she's made it her life's mission to see that he gets caught one day. She talked about um, in the Dateline that there are days where she says, I can't do this anymore. And you know, a few days later, something nudges her to start again. She considers Chris Tapp another victim in this case. Police believe for a while that the killer must be someone in the Esri family tree, but science says that's not always the case. And on July 12, 2017, the Idaho Falls Police Department put out a press release stating that they were 87.63% sure that the DNA from the crime scene did not match the Esri family, and so their names were cleared. Here's one thing I thought about. So sure, they've gone through, like, everybody in their family. You have no idea if, like, somebody in there stepped out with somebody else and had an affair and there's an illegitimate child and that's the person that you know what I mean like it could yeah that's not saying it's in that family at all but I could see how that could happen in cases where um there's a child that somebody gave up for adoption and that's not totally out in the open and that's the person that did it right you can't chase you know but you're not it's not connected to like the rest of the family tree right exactly so as we said, a memorial site has been set up in Angie's honor, and you can find that at angiedodge.com. Please, please, please go visit that site. Turn off the music if you don't want to cry. Actually, you're going to cry anyway. But yeah. <laughs> if you need to cry, sometimes I just need to cry. That's the kind of thing you need to go to. Yes. There are links there to some of the documentaries and news articles featured in this story if you'd like to check those out and learn a few more details. And of course, we will link everything in our show notes as usual. 
Mandy. That was a terrible, sad, sad case. It I was. I mean, it's like, it's one of those ups and downs. I feel like it has yeah. good and, and terrible and mostly terrible. Thank goodness for good attorneys, like our dear friend, defense attorneys, like Channing. Yes. The defense attorney in this case was amazing and, and is still fighting to help Carol, even though he's not connected to Carol, right. really, you know, yeah. he was... Uh, connected to Chris um, to help her find answers. So sometimes I think attorneys, defense attorneys get a bad rap because, you know, oh my goodness, how could somebody represent this person? But my goodness, there are all these people who need good attorneys right. that are being wrongfully convic- convicted that do make false confessions and stuff. And where will they be if they don't have a good attorney? They'll they'll be in jail like this guy. I mean, right. he, that's not why he was in jail, but you know, he may have never gotten out if he didn't have a good attorney. So right. Ugh, this makes me feel too many things. I know. I know. This was a very fascinating story, but definitely one of the more sad ones I think we've done. Right. So we don't want to leave you on a sad note, so we will do our last thing before we go. Um, I grabbed a couple, Mandy. I think you'll like these. This comes from Jennifer C. in our Facebook group. What was your, and this is only because Mandy loves Halloween, what was your favorite personal Halloween costume? Mandy. Like over my whole life? Your whole life. Oh my gosh. I don't even know. This is terrible. So I was not allowed to dress up as in Halloween stuff as a kid. It just wasn't something we did in our family. And so I didn't dress up until I was an adult. And by that time, it's kind of like, if you haven't been doing this for a while, you don't know what you're doing. So I've dressed up as Liz Lemon from 30 Rock like three times. <laughs> what does that involve? Like It involves glasses and slightly waving my hair and wearing a blazer and a like striped <laughs> shirt. And I'm amazing at all of those things. So yeah, it works great for me. And so we'll post pictures maybe if you can find yeah. some of yours. So yeah, what's yours? I have um, – well, there was one I did a few years back and I was like a pop art comic book character. That was cool. I remember yeah, seeing that. Yeah, that one was pretty cool. And so like – I it most of the costume was just makeup like that I did, but um, I did actually wear like a whole thing, and so to make myself look like a comic book character, um, that one was pretty cool and it was fun, and, and the makeup was very time consuming. So I'm gonna say that's yeah. my favorite one just because I spent the most time on it. It was really cool though. I I really enjoyed that costume. Meanwhile, I just threw on a pair of glasses and yeah. a blazer and <laughs> went on my way. Asked for candy. So um, Lindsay M. in our Facebook group asked, what's a hard word or words for you to say? And hers is sushi chef. Mandy, I don't, I don't have a hard time with any words. Mandy knows this. She records with me, and I never yell at it 5,000 times because I can't speak. <laughs> Do you have any that you can't say? Uh, sometimes, like, words are, like, illicit. Like, yeah. that will, like, trip me up. Or, like, anything that I feel like has too many of the same sounds, like, in the word. Yeah. And now I'm struggling to even think of another example. But like. You do pretty good though. I never notice you tripping up. <laughs> I do speak pretty clearly. Yeah, she does. Um, <laughs> well, some people call it nails on a chalkboard, but that's just people that leave us <laughs> iTunes reviews. So um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I, I can't. I have a hard time saying police officers. You'll hear me say, what do I say instead? I don't say cops. I change it though. I'm always like, yeah, what do I say? Detectives or something. I like just straight up change their job title, everything. After three times of trying to say it, I'm like, I can't do it anymore. My favorite joke about words to say is uh, rural juror from uh, 30 Rock. (laughs) Yeah. So she like portrays a rural juror and there's like a song and everything, but it makes me laugh so hard. So look at that. I brought Liz Lemon and 30 Rock in it twice. (laughs) I'm doing it, guys. Um, So uh, yeah, I think that's about 
the only, I mean, I, I can't say anything really. Right. <laughs> it would just be a list of words I can't say. And that's no fun for anyone. Um, so tonight we are recording with Paul from Varmints. Yay. We're so excited. Yes. We can't tell you the subject. No, but you can find out soon. You can find out tomorrow. So yeah. this is uh, September 11th that this is coming out, and September 12th um, it will be on Varmints. Please check it out, and we're going to play Paul's promo. And I promise to get in one Jersey Shore reference because I'm super excited about it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's nothing to do with what we're doing. So um, you guys have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Yay. Bye. Bye. Hey, my name's Paul, and I'm not an animal expert. I'm Donna, and I'm not an animal expert either. And together we do a podcast about animals called Varmints. Every week we pick an animal, do a bunch of research on it, and bring you some interesting facts about that animal. But we don't stop there. We talk about that animal in movies, TV, and other pop culture. And we talk about whether or not that animal would make a tasty dish, and how intelligent we think it is on the scale of 1 to 10. It's exactly like one of those fancy PBS nature documentaries. Except with more poo jokes. New episodes go live every Thursday wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or you can visit us at blazingcariboustudios.com. <laughs> Varmints! Varmints! <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Moms of Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.